Everybody <laughs> is going to be so mad at us because we're already doing a podcast without using our proper gear. In our defence, we're in Perth, and if we tried to take that contraceptive device uh, to Perth on a plane, <laughs> we'd still be in detention. Peter Dutton would be just standing over both of us just going, All right! <laughs> this isn't funny! Now, we, just, we have to paint a bit of a picture here. Picture I'm going to hold that tea because you're going to spill it all over your stupid leg because you're going to start twitching with laughter. Here we are. Okay, okay. put it yeah. down. Okay, put it down. All right, so we, we, are, we are sprawling on a, on a large bed in a sort of... What, how well, do you describe staying, the hotel room? We're staying in a hotel attached to a casino in Perth. Well, that narrows it down, doesn't it, love? <laughs> it's just one of the... Oh, yeah, still there's plausible deniability there. It could be any hotel attached to a casino in Perth, couldn't it, really? Um, the, we're here for a conference, a women in mining conference that we do every year that we really enjoy, uh, which is it's Women in Mining Western Australia. Um, and it is a whole group of really interesting women who work in that field and get together once a year. Uh, they are awesome, by the way. You just you walk in and you just meet the most insanely like hard-ass, fantastic women. Like, and the woman who introduces it, uh, sorry, the woman who runs its name is Sabina Shug and she always introduces herself by going, that's Sabina the minor, not Sabina the ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> she and her sister Vanessa are just this amazing pair. Anyway, there's, there's just, there's some, my favourite story was that um, excellent woman from the company who, um, you know, they wanted to get more women involved in their drill um, on their drill rigs, yeah. and um, but some of the machinery was like just it was you had to be a certain body size and weight to like comfortably manage these you know blah blahs flanges let's call them flanges <laughs> I don't know valves <laughs> yeah. and um, so they designed a rig that was um, like hydraulically enabled to be operated by a smaller person and they got this all-female drill rig team together and then they immediately just went into battle with all the existing male teams and the productivity went right up because they were just like oh shit i'm gonna be beaten by them chick <laughs> it's such a diabolical move it was it was really really interesting i thought i felt like there was a moment where i nearly lost the room in the same way that i nearly lost the room um with dickens at the sydney rice <laughs> festival which was i confess to not being that good at maths and told this anecdote about how anytime i need help with any sort of numerically based thing i ring my friend scott that i went to school with in brisbane who's an engineer and so you know last time i texted him about something i was like scott um i've measured my backyard and i need some topsoil if I, I, this is the sum that I did. Okay, so I think I need 500 metres squared of topsoil, 500 square metres of topsoil, and Scott's replied, uh, if your goal is for your house to be underground, then yes, that's how much topsoil you require. Anyway, you can always hear the room going, oh, for goodness. It was actually a, like, it was like a Dickens moment. Like, you do have an inordinate <laughs> personal skill. <laughs> like, just completely thought... making an entire room just think, wow. <laughs> Really? He's going to come up to me later and say, I'm really disappointed at you making, you know, as if it was a good thing that you're really bad at maths. I was waiting to get lectured. Well, I was sitting next to you on stage and you'll notice that I just like, I just (laughs) abandoned you with, (laughs) I fleet footedly (laughs) just bolted away from you. I'm like, even I could do that sometimes. You, you were doing a little bit kind of, you know, hey, crab, hey, hey. <laughs> we're all like that, aren't we? I'm like, you. You're like, no, I know how to build hydraulic pumps. Flanges. Now, I'll say what's happened this morning is. Lovely segue from the flange. Here's what's happened. 
We've had no intention of coming over here and doing a podcast, right? Because as explained, we don't think we can transport our recording gear on flights and get it through airport security because of the cables and the wires and all that sort of palaver. So uh, we're sitting at breakfast this morning and we start having a really interesting conversation. Are we going to be able to tell this story? I don't, I don't think I can. I back you. I can't add up, but I'm sure you can tell this story. You tell it. Oh, man. She's already a puddle. So um, so we're just sitting. And it, look, the background is it's actually it's one of the nicest hotel buffet breakfasts oh, I've ever um, – like, I had this kind of – I got the, – they had a whole tray of smug mini bunts, so I got one of those for yeah. sales. I had like a miso-crusted salmon and then a bowl of miso and, then, and like one of those little steamed custards, and it was – just such awesome, like a lot of different breakfast foods. And I was just really in a, a really happy place. And I had about a thimble size of probably, I'm not exaggerating, 30 different things. Sure. I just could not decide what I wanted. So I had like one tiny mini pickle, one cherry tomato, <laughs> one slice of bacon, one piece of blue cheese. I just kept going around, one piece of salmon. Um, yeah, it was quite the, I've got like the equivalent of a smorgasbord in my stomach now. Anyway, so we're sitting there. We start having this interesting conversation. <laughs> Crab goes, hey, should we just go back upstairs to the room and start recording a podcast? And it was like, um, it was sort of the vibe of like we were in a bar or something late at night and somebody's just gone, let's just cut to the chase. Let's just go back to our room. And then we've realised, oh, but we can't because we don't have the medieval contraceptive device. <laughs> gone who cares if we don't have contraceptives let's just head up there so anyway then we just dissolved into uncontrollable giggles and embarrassed ourselves in the lift in front of people <laughs> there are a lot of um uh bolt-on um additions to the to the the gag i'd say <laughs> in the lift on the way up to the great consternation of the seven-year-old girl who was in the lift with us she's just looking at us going mm, growing up real soon um but what we were talking about was can you remember what it was <laughs> We were having like a really increasingly intense conversation about Masters of None, that Aziz Anwari Ansari um, season, and it was actually just getting so interesting that I said, "God, I'm feeling all sort of let's horny. Let's go. Let's go do a podcast." <laughs> and it's true. One of the odd things that I've noticed about doing this podcast in its um, one of the effects it's had on our friendship, I think, is that. I now feel if we ever start talking about something interesting, it's like a bit of a waste. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, <laughs> I was just making a cup of tea with the last remaining tea bag in Sales' tea um, hotel room, and we start talking about it again. And Sales is like, "Shut up! We're gonna wait until we start recording. Otherwise, it's like just you know going to the bathroom to jerk off. It's a waste." <laughs> Glad that you just shared a line that I would not publicly. Oh, say. okay. Well, we, we might we might pop back and and uh, and have Brenda remove that it's one. Too funny to take out. Oh so god, I'm just that's glad it. it. Came out of your mouth. Yeah, all right. Although I, you know, definitely <laughs> attributed it. You'll notice. <laughs> um, yeah. So talking about Master of None, what we were talking about was. I really love that show. It's fantastic. You recommended it to me in an earlier podcast episode. There's a new season now, which is I think season two. It's only two seasons. It is season two. So it's about um, uh, the writer-narrator who breaks up with his girlfriend um, and, he, and he, as threatened, he moves to uh, Italy to, to learn how to make pasta. And, that's and so the season opens in Italy and you're sort of thinking as it opens, 
oh my god, right, you're actually going to do this, okay, this show is actually going to relocate to Italy, all right, and it's beautiful, but it's also crazy, because he is this New Yorker. Um, and it's probably the episode is at least two-thirds in Italian. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think um, Aziz Ansari has taken a leaf from the, um, you know, jammy bastards handbook oh. devised by Rob Brydon and uh, Steve Coogan about setting your stuff in exotic locales. Anyway, the... You've got to see that movie, by the way. Oh, totally. Um, I find the show really interesting because often not much happens. It's more like a sort of social observation type show. Like the episode before the one I just watched last night, it was um, it was called First Date. And it's basically him on a first date, but then it keeps intercutting with it's a different woman. Um, and it just shows the sort of, you know, stupid small talk you get stuck in and whatnot. But the, the thing that really got us talking last night was this episode last night, he's hanging around with this girl who uh, he was friends with in Italy. She's got a boyfriend. She's come to New York with the boyfriend. She's off the charts beautiful. Unbelievable, yeah. like Audrey Hepburn-esque level of beautiful. Um, she goes to a party with him and someone at the party says to him, you've got to be careful, you're going to get your heart broken because, you, you know, I think you fancy that girl. Anyway, then he drops her home, she jumps out of the cab and then it does this thing where it just stays on a shot of him sitting alone in the back of the cab on his way home for a good, do you reckon, four minutes? Yeah. Long past the point at which it's a normal device. Yeah, it just goes on and on. But it's unbelievably powerful, and you, not for one second do you ever feel like, okay, let it go. Like you're just as utterly absorbed in. You can sort of tell what the guy's thinking that, like, oh God, you know, I am a bit in love with her, and oh no, oh, gee. and then he's just alone in back of the cab and blah blah blah. Because um, oh, he knows her and they're friends, and he knows her fiance too, and. You know, he, the the fiance is a bit no account. Like he's got he's got I'm expendable later in the series yeah, written really. all over him. Like you're not quite attached to him, but it's so it's it's really unresolved. And it's not even you know the flirtation between them is not even at a level where you think oh my god they're gonna go go for it even without oh, nice. the medieval contraceptive device. <laughs> like he's clearly dropping her home. But then uh, what I love about it is that I watch it and. Part of my brain is thinking, what's going on in his brain? I admire the fact that the um, the makers of the series like haven't. It's so um, inconclusive. You know, it's not even a really strong pro- plot line so far. But also, just the sheer effrontery uh, as a as a maker of a television show to spend four minutes of airtime, which is super expensive. You know, if you're trying to write a plot that will actually um, draw viewers in and keep them. Um, I mean, like, we've been making these episodes of The House and every half-hour episode is like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Like, you like a, a second and a half is valuable. Like, mm. you, you'll shave a second and a half here so you can put it on somewhere else. Like, mm. time is like gold in a half-hour television series. And yet they've just squirted four minutes of it away, just up close on this guy's face as he drives, you know, through New York in a taxi. It is... So bold, incredibly and bold, and so gosh, such a success. Worked. Yeah, it worked so well. Oh, um, God, what a cigarette! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way as well that when we sat on the bed, you started like taking your shoes off and actually disrobing. I was like, "What? What is going on here?" Well, I've radically misread these <laughs> signals. <laughs> No, I just didn't want to put my boots on your lovely <laughs> Manchester. <laughs> I'm just 
envisaging like some future news story. Uh, the Chuck Ten Looks Three podcast is no longer after an epic misunderstanding and falling out between the hosts. Peak awkward was reached this morning in Perth when. Um, now we were also giddy with excitement to come here because uh, we got to go on a plane for five hours. We, yeah. we thought it was like a mini vacation. No one interrupted us. We just hung out. Um, I watched something. You watched something. What are you talking about? What you watched? Not before you like kept leaning over and like making me do administrative things. Yeah. Like because one of the things about this sort of burgeoning chat ten, you know, I assume train accident waiting to happen is that um, sales is now just like booking us in all around Australia. She's much emboldened by the existence of the Facebook group. And now she's just like, so she's constantly ringing up and saying things like, you know, um, how's, you know, September blah, blah and blah, blah. And, you know, um, doing bookings and um, do you have public liability insurance crab? What? Um, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. We had to go and fill out a form on the public liability insurance um, purchasing website, which asks you things like, are you going to do a bed of nails routine or is there any um, live piercing? Will like, anyone be setting fire to themselves? <laughs> just like, well, I don't know. Um, speaking um, of live shows, um, let me just give a little shout out to our Melbourne show. Oh, God. We're doing a, a show. One of our shows in Melbourne's already sold out, I'm sorry, but the other show, there are still tickets that you can get. It's 5 p.m. on Saturday, September the 16th. If you have a look, um, it's at the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne. The details are on our Facebook page or you just go to the Comedy Theatre in Melbourne's website. Um, there's still some tickets that you can have for that. Don't know what we'll be doing in the show. We'll probably just making it up as we go along. Um, but we are trying to work on getting some um, low-level merch <laughs> because yeah. we've been hammered yeah. by some people for a long time to come up with something. And so, of course, sales has been doing that. <laughs> I've had nothing to do with it. Um, but so on the flight, you know, I've, we've discussed before um, my current malaise with movies. I just, I just don't, I just, I hardly ever see a movie where I think, I would be willing to spend two hours of my time watching that. I think I'm in just in a shocking, shocking film slump. My partner said to me the other day, you just don't like movies, do you? I'm like, yeah, of course I, oh, man, maybe I don't. So I was very pleased to see on the flight manifest, you know, I'm like, oh, junk, oh, boring format, oh, action, blah, blah, blah. Um, Joe Chinque's Consolation, which is an Australian film, and I was sort of dimly aware that it was being made, but I haven't seen it, and you haven't seen it either. No. So I watched it. And what did you think? Well, okay. A, it was just giving me flashbacks for being in Canberra because it's it's very in Canberra and um, a lot of the um, geography and um, cityscapes are relentlessly present. So I really felt like... I've got to go back to Canberra to film some more, some more of the house. So it gave me a bit of a, you know, panic rush. But that is an entirely a me-based reaction that would shouldn't be extrapolated to the broader population. I shouldn't think. Uh, I can tell from this that you probably wouldn't be a generous lover. <laughs> can you just say that? The way you keep bringing it back to yourself. Every now and again, my friend. In case that uh, off-mic moment wasn't... Um, Sailor just said, I could tell from the way you're talking about this that you wouldn't be a generous lover. <laughs> this is going to be the stupidest podcast that, episode ever. That miso's gone straight to your head. I'm drunk. It's only miso horny. I'm being impertinent. Not even 9am yet. It feels like 11am. You never get my jokes. 
Um, I just chose to ignore that one because you've used that gag on the podcast before. Oh, have I? But yeah, there's a whole episode called Me So Horny. Oh, all right. But anyway, sorry. So back to Joe Chinque. Yeah. So other than it's right. camera. So here's the thing about it. It takes a really sort of straight up approach to the story of Joe Chinque, who was um, killed by his girlfriend Anu Singh, um, and it was just a crazy, weird, mixed up um, murder story. She was this sort of like quiet, mentally ill um, young woman who became obsessed that she was terminally ill and being poisoned and she um, held a dinner party to say goodbye to all of her friends and then gave her boyfriend Joe an overdose of, of heroin and he died. Um, it was supposed to be a strange sort of suicide plot. It was all very weird. And, of course, um, Helen Garner, in her intrepid way, decided to tangle with this story and covered the court case and the moral implications of, of what was going on because the story is remarkable for its supporting cast of friends and hangers-on who were sort of like to some degree aware of what was supposed to be going on but thought it wasn't serious or, you know, in any event did not step in and stop it. And so the principal characters are Jo um, and Anu and also her friend who, um, her name's Madavi, who um, kind of is her fat totem and kind of carries out all her orders and is sort of um, subsequently charged as well. And from um, whose point of view is this told? Because the book is in the first person. Helen Garner is... Is oh. Helen Garner a character in it? No. There is no Garner, which is the problem with the film, I think. It is... Without the supporting structure of Garner, it is essentially a moral tale without a moral. Like, it's... It's, it's a sprawling and quite... Um, confounding series of events with a thoroughly unlikable protagonist in Anu and she's also just unbelievably beautiful, this girl, um, the woman who plays Anu Singh um, and so she's kind of incredible to watch but it's also, it's hard to tie it together. I mean, the compelling part of the book is Helen Garner's um, really grinding and deep moral tussle with what she's seeing and the and her main theme is is the absence of a of a moral structure to this group of people and of any sense to the decisions that the principal character takes and that is the that is the heart of the book mm. and it's what i mean even the title joe chinque's consolation is a literal reference to Helen trying to find something in this bleak and uninspiring tale about how how perfidious people can be and, you know, she's trying to wring something out of it as a consolation for Joe's mother, who is just incredibly bereft. So who's the protagonist in the film? Is it Anu Singh? Well, yeah. I mean, it's not... It, it's, it's shot neutrally, you know, it sort of follows them all around. But she is the main character. But you never really... I don't know, it's hard to get inside the story. It still makes no sense at the end of it. And at the end of the book, um, the book makes this sort of... There's no answer, and there can't ever be. I mean, this is a true story, right? So you can't accuse the film of not having... Um, made sense because the act doesn't make sense, mm. the conspiracy doesn't make sense, the behaviour of these people is just is so depressing. But without the 
without the context of Ghana ex- explaining that and, and struggling to find a broader meaning and, and sort of failing, but also um, giving you a lot to think about along the way, I just found it was um, a bit invertebrate. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. Performances were great and the mm. writing was good. Like, it was, it was well made. I guess the problem is if you keep the Ghana character in and then it's as the book is, it's told through her prism, well, then you can't... How do you leap to the scene where, for example, she gives him the drug overdose? You can't because that's outside that character's knowledge. Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting because, in a way, the book and the film interact together because the, the film fills in things that you don't see in the book mm. and the book then gives you the moral context mm. of, of what happens in the film, which is just the straight story, right? And And, you know... It, when you read the Ghana book, um, she tells the, the crime scene story from the photographs, and it's it's a very chilling way to tell a story. It's it's sort of at once drained of its um, its sort of warmth and activity and panic, but in the in the same way you can readily intuit that from what you read, you know. So your imagination does the rest, you know. She describes what the crime scene photos look like and you think of the unbelievable activity that must have led those people to that point, you know, that's sort of frozen in time as a chilly um, cop photo. Whereas in the film, you know, you're there and you're seeing it all happen. But somehow, I don't know, and it's not sort of super horribly graphic or anything but somehow even though you get all that action what you don't get is the um intellectual or moral consideration of what happens and that's why i I find it really hard to make a comment on the film um more broadly just because i have read the book i think Mm. i have no idea and i can't have any idea what it would be like to watch that film um you know without having read the book maybe it would be a satisfying experience, but having read the book, I found it, you know, it was, it was interesting. I wasn't bored. Um, and it was sort of well made, but I just, I, I, I would have really struggled as a filmmaker. I reckon as a filmmaker, I, I would just not be doing it, um, uh, to, to, to tell that story without Ghana. Maybe, maybe it's just one of those things that actually is not really a film. <laughs> like when whoever it was optioned The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean and then the film became adaptation because it was just absolute nightmare <laughs> to try to make a film out of it. Um, I, on the plane, watched an episode of The People vs. O.J. Simpson. <gasps> it is really good. And actually, I meant to do... I didn't realise we were going to sort of suddenly... <laughs> Tear all our clothes off and start doing this without even having the medieval contraceptive device here. But because um, I had been planning to Google a bit of stuff about it, but I mean, it's really good, really good. And I'm amazed at how tense I am because I keep saying to myself, you know, the Bronco scene, yeah. I'm like, dude, he doesn't shoot himself in the back of the Bronco. We all know that. We all know that he goes to trial. We all know he doesn't escape. And the tension was just, I could barely watch it. It was, I, I don't know how they created the tension with it. It reminded me a bit of Frost Nixon where I felt like physically ill watching that. And again, was just going, uh, dude, we know that David Frost actually does show up and do the interviews with Richard Nixon. We don't need to vomit into our laps in the cinema. It's fine. Um, anyway, so they've done an incredible job of this um O.J. Simpson, but I had forgotten that, I mean, God, that story was pervasive in the 90s when it was all happening. You know, all the names of those people, I still remember them all, you know, Robert Shapiro and... Um, Kardashian. Yeah. Um, what was his name? Is it 
David, no, I think it's David. Is it David Shapiro and Robert Kardashian? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, and the Bob, sorry, and, Bob Shapiro it is. And um, the lawyer with the curly hair. What's Marsha. Marsha. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Kardashians, there's an amazing scene. So um, the Robert Kardashian, I think his name's Robert Kardashian, he um, is the father, of course, of... Yeah. All of the Kardashians. And there's this great scene. We could have taken him out back then. <laughs> there's this great scene where he takes the kids to some sort of buffet restaurant. And the kids are all like, oh, Dad, you're on TV, blah, blah, blah. And they're all sort of super excited. And he's like, kids, fame. Like, it's not, fame's not valuable. Fame's fleeting. Fame is, fame is nothing without virtue and character. And he gives the kids this lecture about how fame means nothing. Mm. But the kids are just so, they're watching this OJ thing play out. It was really interesting to think. God, yeah, I wonder how that sort of all fit into their psyche. Right, so it's a drama. Like, it's mm. it's actors, it's not like a doco, it's a full drama. It's a full drama, and, I mean, the cast is amazing. There's um, John Travolta and Connie Britton, Cuba Gooding Jr. as O.J. Simpson, um, oh, uh, the guy from Entourage who plays... Um, no, not Entourage, um, the guy who was Runkle in Californication is in it, um, who's fantastic, Um Oh, it's really, really good. It's very, very gripping. And I can't believe how gripping, given that it's a very well-known story. So It was just the beginning. It was sort of the beginning of... I feel like it was the beginning of round-the-clock news. And I know that that's not true, but... um, but It was one of the first big stories of that. Because the first big sort of mark of 24 Hour News arrived was CNN's coverage of the 1991 Gulf War. And this was, I think, 1994. So it wasn't that long after. But they do capture that quite well, because they show... I mean, it's a big story even before he does the run in the Bronco. But then that's when that's just on every channel. You know, there's a major, I think, basketball final happening and it gets taken off to put on the car. And there's a scene where OJ's lawyers are like, mate, you know, we can just any time of the day, any channel, put it on. And it's about OJ Simpson. And that was, you know, what it was like. It was just unbelievable. Anyway, I highly recommend it. It's great. Oh, God, that's just going to chew up some more of my life, isn't it? It is. I've started watching The Night Manager on your um, oh, yeah. yeah, on your advice. I and. Like um, the first app, I was just a bit like, what? I don't know. This seems a bit... Mm. I just I didn't... Re- it didn't super grab me. I mean, I was sort of intrigued, but... So this is the one um, where Tom Hiddleston is the night manager of this hotel and it's um, uh, during... It's in Cairo, isn't it? Mm. Um, during the um, Arab Spring and he's um, become sort of a bit attached to or protective of the girlfriend of this sort of um, arms, dealer. arms dealer type. And then somehow um, uh, um, Hugh Laurie turns up, <laughs> as he so often does in these circumstances. Anyway, um, and I was a bit like, eh, I don't know, episode two though, it, the hook's now jammed in the roof of my mouth. I'm not getting out of this oh, series until good. I see it all. Yeah, no. Because my friend Andrew also wasn't immediately hooked by it and then got hooked into it. So maybe maybe it's a problem with episode one. It's interesting because it actually the action moves fairly quickly out of Cairo into yeah. other locales. And then... I just think that that's, I mean, allow me to bore on about the science of making television shows now that we've spent a year making one. Episode one is really hard. Episode one of a television series is really hard because you've got to establish everything. And in our case, in our case, I mean, very much like that brilliantly successful series, The Night Manager, our series about Australian Parliament House. <laughs> Sorry. But I mean, like, it's just, it's, you've got to, you're trying to tell people what this is going to be about and give them a sense that it's always going to be so interesting and things are going to happen. But also, first, you have to introduce everybody. So you've got to spend half the time establishing everything. It's really, it's hard. Episode one is hard. I think that's right, having never made anything that has an episode one. But I'm just going to agree with you because... 
That's how I Because it's quicker it. that way. Okay. Oh, man, I am just in my Rachel Cusk spiral still. So I finished Outline and just remain just standing to attention and saluting at the brilliance of that book. And one of the smuggest parts of reading Outline by Rachel Cusk is the knowledge that there is another book called Transit that kind of is a companion volume and it is just as superb as the first again you meet all of these different characters and through the through the um uh, principal character you just wander gently through a series of really i would say moving but not in the not in the kind of orthodox sense these little reflections do move you you kind of think about obvious things in a different way and it's just it's it's great writing and it's funny too but um but also just very profound just find it it's an altering book has she only written the two books no i think that there is a third i I think that there is actually a third um so i just i love it i'm really really loving it transit um yeah rachel cusk why didn't anyone tell me there is something about the voice of this um figure who is the the central character in the Rachel Cusk novels that is she's so observant and quite judgmentally so you know she's she's a sharp observer but she's also physically unintrusive and she isn't a huge personality you know she she has conversations with the people that she meets but she's she's almost like a just this sort of interlocutor she's not a um she's not a a pushy participant in the conversations until she comes out with some sort of like quite sharp piece of moral um, uh, observation, which she passes along. Like it's just, yeah. And it, it, so much of it reminds me of Ghana because there's that same just um, insanely observant eye that she brings to um, watching other people's interactions and so on. Uh, I am reading a book called Between Them by Richard Ford. He's, you know, Independence yeah. Day, big, very famous American writer. Um, it's about his parents. The first half's about his father. The second half's about his mother. It's not a very big book. It's quite thin. Um, but again, you know, beautifully observed, um, lovingly written. You know, clearly his parents are a bit flawed, but lovingly written. It's reminding me a bit of Kate Grenville's book about her mother, oh, the name yeah. of which escapes me, but just like fairly unremarkable lives, but observed by a really, really good writer. Um, and so I'm enjoying that and finding it um, quite absorbing and, and um, moving. Now, speaking of books, since we're here in Perth, we mentioned before <laughs> Sabina Shug. Her sister's name is Vanessa, Ch- Vanessa Shug, and they both listen to Chat 10 Looks 3. Vanessa bought me a gift, which is a book called Mr. Tuba by Harry Phillips, who it's his memoir. He's one of the world's great tuba players. It's full of hilarious photos of him and his tuba and just his life story. Anyway, Vanessa, knowing that I like to offload books, had an idea that we would inscribe this book and she's going to hide it in a second-hand bookstore in Perth and the challenge is for somebody to find it. Now, I've taken a photo of the cover of it and so we're going to put it... In fact, I think there's a photo of me and Vanessa with it, so we'll put that on the social media accounts. If So if you are in Perth, it's your challenge to find this inscribed book. Crab and I have written a message in the front of it. And I have to say, in the short period of time during which you were in physical control of the book, sales has gone straight to the um, photographic part of the middle of the book. Like it's, you know, someone's put some resources into making this book. There's lovely, um, you know, glossy um, photo plates. 
And she's just like flipping through. There's all these photographs of like guys reclining on hotel beds with their tubers. And she's going, see, yep, yep, classic tuba player, classic. Look at this guy. They all, yeah. Exhibit A in Sales versus the Tuba Players was a piece I put on our Facebook group about, it was a New York Times profile of a thing called the Titanic Tuba, which was this gigantic tuba, like the size of a room, basically. And suddenly I'm not listening. <laughs> and they got, I told you you weren't a generous lover. They've got, they've got this um, guy to come in who's like, you know, one of America's great tuba players. Oh, my God. He, I just, like, I could have... He's this tuba player from Central Casting. Um, exhibit B in the tuba players is this book, which also I just kept saying to crab, look at this one! Look at this one! But having said that, I've got a newfound respect for tuba players. Many people have sent me a video that's come out this week in the wake of that disgraceful Charlottesville episode in the United States. It's not, it's not from recent. It's an old video, a few years old. It's a group of prongs in their, you know, white supremacist nimrods with their Confederate flags marching down a street somewhere in the United States and some champion tuba player is just marching along the sidewalk alongside them, just playing sort of comical (laughs) just like ridiculing them by accompanying them with tuba music. (laughs) It's just the greatest thing ever. So good. It's like the profoundest act of self-sacrifice, isn't it? Like, oh. and also the deepest acknowledgement that you are at your core ridiculous, oh. and like that that is your that is your contribution to the race debate in America is just to lend a tiny bit of your own ridiculousness <laughs> to really to mess up someone else's day. Just really deserving people. Ridicule is such an underutilized weapon, yes. and particularly against people like that. Like, I mean, what could be a more powerful weapon against those people that just ridicule and laugh at them. I just love the the epic self-sacrifice, though. It's like that amazing final scene in The Tale of Two Cities. Oh, except, of course, you wouldn't oh, know about that, I would know, you? Yeah. About. Um, <laughs> the other thing I just wanted to mention is, um, just because we're sort of feeling our way a bit with, you know, what we're doing with Chat Tan, and as I said, we're doing some live shows, and we've got this gigantic Facebook group now, and just sort of a bit shocked by how big it all is. Solata sales have apparently increased 15% since March, according to Coles. You just love being right, don't you? Because like, sales was on to this a while back. She's like, I reckon Solata's going to go through the roof. She's already put a call in, as I think I've mentioned, <laughs> to the whatever biscuit company nice. makes Solata's. And they're all a bit like, yeah, hi, there's a late, there's a lease sales on line one, line one, wanting to, yeah, just pop her off, put her through to the car park, you know? SBS Foods done a piece about it going viral. Because like, as you would maybe be aware, or maybe not, um, I mean, hundreds of people have sent us photos of their crack, and then they send us photos... Um, <laughs> you might like to rephrase that. <laughs> and then they also send us photos... Uh-oh. <laughs> photos of empty salada boxes on shelves. Anyway, SBS Food has done a story about it. They've run Coles, and Coles has said salada sales are up 15% since March. Unbelievable. Anyway... Uh, what I did want to say was, from all of the live shows, we've resolved, because Chat 10 seems to be a very sort of giving and nice community of people, a percentage from all of the live shows is going to charities. And we are um, just picking charities in each location that we um, feel a particular affinity with or that seem to resound with our values. So, uh, for example, in Sydney, it's going to be the Sydney Story Factory, which helps um, kids with their literacy and, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Um, now, I need you to bugger off, and do you know why? Because, you know my essay that I wrote in 2009 on doubt? Yes. 
Melbourne University Publishing, which published it, is reissuing it nearly a decade later. Thank God. Because they think the themes seem very salient in this day and age, um, because it's basically about the rise of opinion in place of fact, which, of course, now that I think back, I think, wow, and I was worried about that in 2009. <laughs> they were the golden days. <laughs> um, oh, my God, compared to today. So um, they asked, can I bang over a quick postscript for it, for the new edition, which I've got to do today. Right. How are we going to break that to that lady who, at the charity event that we attended the other night, paid like 180 bucks for what was guaranteed or claimed to be the last copy of Lee Sales's On Doubt in Australia? Like, she's just going to be going, ah. I told told her, I said, you've got the last copy of the old edition. It's special. And now it's signed by me. Extra special. God. That was Alison. Hi, Alison. Hi, Alison. Um, that is a great book, though, and um, I often reread my copy because I haven't thrown it out because oh. I'm not like that. Also, uh, I noticed, because they didn't ask me, but you forwarded it to me, that they asked you to write a cover blurb for it. That's right, and I am looking forward to that. <laughs> I might set up a poll on the on the Facebook group, like, just like, write a casual <laughs> jacket remark. Well, this smug bunt has come up. With Imagine if the whole like the whole jacket cover remark was just a series of unintelligible to anyone else chat ten gags. Oh yeah, exactly. You know this bird hater, blah blah. blah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you told when we were at a charity thing the other night raising money for something, you sort of made a gag about me hating birds, and I think the room was like ninety five percent people that don't listen to chat ten, and they just like. Wow, Lee Sales is actually a monster. <laughs> I enjoyed that moment particularly. <laughs> right, well, let's either like do it or just keep going with our days. Oh yeah, was all it right. Good for you? Yeah, superb. <laughs> <laughs>